0: I'm supposed to act like they aren't here, assume there's a they at all. It may just be my imagination. Whatever it is that's watching, it's not human. Unlike little dark-eyed Donna, it doesn't ever blink. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me, into us? Clearly or darkly. I hope it sees clearly because I can't any longer see into myself. I see only Mark. I hope for everyone's sake, the Scanners do better. Because if the Scanner sees only darkly the way I do, then I'm cursed. And cursed again. And we'll only wind up dead this way. Knowing very little. And getting that little fragment. Wrong.
1: Hello, friends and enemies, and an extra special hello to one enemy in particular, Nighty Night, big boy. It's episode 10 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always, and uh, we, we've made it to the double digits, boys. The big one, the big one zero. I didn't I didn't know if the podcast would last this long. But but these, you know, the last couple months have just flown by. (laughs)
2: We're we're trapped in here with each other. But it it really has. It's it was only a week ago when the pandemic started. Yeah,
1: yeah. Only a week ago. <laughs> or a year. Or two years. Who knows? What's time? What's time? I, I didn't know if we would have 10 episodes worth of shit to talk about. And, and, you know, maybe we don't. We'll still wait and see how this one turns. Today's going to be a really fun one. It's the, it's the first installment of This Movie Kills, an irregular series where we talk about film like the Ebert and Roper of tech criticism. And, uh, so for, for this week, we wanted to dig into a classic you know we, we were tossing around a lot of different ideas what films we want watch. should we want to do something old something new uh and there, there was just one that really stuck out in my mind and i didn't realize that it was ed hadn't seen it before um talking to scanner darkly so yeah go go ed what did you think of of a scanner i really scanner enjoyed darkly? the
2: movie you know Being i loved how increasingly incoherent or nonsensical some parts of it get but then the the points where it like becomes and crystallizes and you go like oh shit you know of course in the beginning when you're being introduced to like this really pervasive surveillance system um, or to the familiar problems that are causing you know like rampant addiction but also like in the personal life when um, when he has his like serious break and doesn't remember, when the main character, um, who's an undercover cop for Orange County Sheriff's Department, uh, doesn't remember that he is, he doesn't remember his cover identity. So he thinks that he's actually surveilling his cover identity. Yeah. He doesn't realize he's. Like,
1: that, I, I mean, there, there's then, a lot going. There's a lot going. Yeah. Maybe kind of a little bit of <laughs> right, background right. for people that so this, haven't watched the movie or haven't seen it. In so a so long this movie time. is basically,
2: you know, it takes place in like the not too distant future. It follows an
1: undercover. Seven right. years into the future is what it says at the the opening, which I thought was interesting because it was like it it was like so it's based mm-hmm. on a Philip K. Dick novel, um, and it was his way of trying to project something into the future, but not but but more as like mm-hmm. a like a kind of sci fi trope. It's like he wasn't really talking about the future; he was talking about now, but he felt like. Um, he needed to, I think actually his literary agent told him it needed to be set in the future. And it worked out really well, I think, you know, because it's it's immediately,
2: like, familiar, and even the parts that are supposed to be futuristic, listen, this surveillance system or the weird bureaucratic intrigue that happens feel like they could have happened tomorrow, right? And, you know, Yeah, it was written in the set.
1: Yeah, I feel like it happened yesterday.
2: (laughs) Right, right. And it's so it's all based on like a novel that happened in 1977. And basically, the core story is um, there's this cop, you know, they call him Officer Fred. And he is an undercover agent whose identity, when he's undercover, is Bob Arcter, right? And he's chasing the leads on Substance D, which is this drug. You know, D is in death. That has like you know swept the country. Twenty percent of the population is addicted to it. It's resulted in these massive rehabilitation centers, which are very important later on, um, springing up everywhere across to try to rehabilitate people. Right, the drug is you know causes intense brain damage. Uh, you know, it, it disorientation, um, like dissociation, and so as a result, right, he's being on the cover to hopefully disrupt the supply chain. Of it, and he's supposed to uh, get close to like a group of drifters and addicts um, that are basically living in and out of his home. And as the story develops, he starts to lose his sense of self partly because he's doing the drug at the same time, right? And also because there's a weird bureaucratic intrigue. He, he wears this thing called a scrambler man, suit, all the undercover we call Fred agents Fred wear because it because right? you're not supposed to know who's underneath together. the suit. Once within, the scramble suit cannot be detected by even the latest in voice and facial recognition technology. The scramble suit itself is purportedly made up of approximately a million and a half fraction representations of men, women, and children in every variant, making the wearer of a scramble suit the ultimate everyman. Right, and like, because of that, like he doesn't know who his boss is, his boss doesn't know who he is, and his boss assigns him to watch himself. And so he starts using the scanner system, right, to, to spy on himself as he is also spiraling further and further into this um, into addiction and into his – I mean, honestly, into his brain being destroyed and, and, and psychosis approaching. At the same time that another friend of his or someone he thinks is a friend is trying to – suspects him of being an undercover cop and tries to hand him over to the cops, right? And all these, like, intrigue culminates in a – in, a, in a, a, a moment where he breaks from reality and forgets that he's surveilling himself and then is confronted with the fact that this woman that he was in love with, um, you know, that was his girlfriend while he was undercover, is actually his superior, but he didn't know because they were also under the scramble suit and that they had set him up as a sacrificial lamb, essentially, right Where he would get addicted to the drug. He'd go into this rehabilitation center. And then
1: the new path rehab Clinic. right?
2: And the rehabilitation center is suspected by the police department to be the major distributor, producer, and supplier of this drug. So they need someone to go in and get there. But the only way that they'll let you get near the drug is if you've been so, you've used it so much, so addicted to it, so brain damaged by it that you won't pose a risk to them. So they try to also program him to like. Remember to bring back flowers because he loves her, right? You know, the whole movie they're talking about bringing flowers to, to this woman. Who yeah,
1: because it's all based on this like blue flower. Um, that we, we, so there's so
3: much going. Yeah, on there's a here. lot. I mean, that's a really
1: that, that that that's a really excellent and and short synopsis. Of the film,
3: Jason and Ed, I'm I'm pretty sure you've heard the song "Blue Flowers" by Dr. Octagon. Um, Those are the blue flowers that uh, he is referring to in the song. I
1: love Dr. Octagon. I love Dr. Octagon, ecologist. Uh And I, I didn't. Yeah, I never made that connection. That that's that's the blue flowers he was referencing. Uh, we were talking about before the record. We were talking before we were recording. Uh, uh, that was producer Jeremy. For those who haven't heard his voice yet, uh, uh, we were all three talking about hip hop before the record. Um, and also about how like Philip K. Dick, had a huge influence on that late nineties kind of dystopian hip hop, how like, you know, basically you're saying that like, if, if, if Philip K. Dick grew up in Brooklyn in the nineties, he would be El Producto. He'd be LP. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Even that the blue flower, the blue flowers is just like off of cool keeps first album. Right. And that's like
3: what? Ninety six. Yeah. You also around. Yeah. The period of everybody reinventing himself. I mean, that was his first album he did post, uh, Magnetic MCs um, shortly after that reinvented himself as Black Elvis and continued changing his persona all the way in through the yachts, just like uh, other rap artists did at the time.
1: Just the golden age of hip-hop where like everybody was putting out albums under alter egos and a lot of times their alter egos were better like I, I like Deltron is to me somehow even better than Del the Funky Homo Sapien right? Like, right.
2: Or, like, you know, Doom's various you know, um, oh, aliases, MF like Vic-
3: Victor Vaughn and, and Mad Villain. you know. It's in large part to Dan the Automator's production um, on Deltron 3030 and also he's the, Dr. He's, he's the
0: thread.
1: He's the red thread throughout all of this.
2: You know, it's kind of also interesting that in the past 10 years, maybe, there's been, like, a resurgence of, like... Um, uh, lyric, lyric lyricism or like callbacks to like that uh back to backpack rapper you know um constructing conceptual albums and also like also on, as a side note like weird albums but there's nothing there really hasn't been like i think stuff that harkens back to like that 90s era of experiment experimentalism right where you don't you-
1: experimental and that like and it had a real like dystopian sci-fi uh-huh. kind of vibe to it. Like it was really capturing a mood of the nineties, which, you know, that brings us back to Scanner Darkly. I mean, this, this movie came out in 2006. Um, but it, it it's a weird, it's a weird amalgamation because it was like based on a novel, like a really semi autobiographical novel by Pete, uh, Philip K. Dick that he wrote in 77, like near the end of his life. Um, but it was based in this time period in the early seventies where, like, I mean, he was basically living as Fred Arcter, just not an undercover cop. Right, right. Um, But, like, yeah, it was, like, after his, his, his fourth wife left him and he was living in this, like, four-bedroom, two-bathroom home all by himself, and he eventually he just, you know, got super into the drug and drifter scene and just had this constant rotation of, like, teenage uh, drifters living with him. Uh, and, and, and that, so you get that element of like the seventies drug culture mixed with, uh, you know, he wrote the book projecting it into the nineties, but wrote it in a, uh, but wrote it very much. In, in the 70s, like the the whole like, you know, seven years in the future, X years in the future is just a conceit that he doesn't actually <laughs> run through. Um, but what gives it that ni- that like really 90s flair is the fact that the movie is made by Richard Linklater, uh, who, you know, made slackers, um, you know, made waking life. So he ha- made dazed and confused. So he has this the. Director who also wrote the screenplay, um, adapting it from uh, Dick's novel, has this kind of real, um, you know, druggy, you know, conscious druggy (laughs) uh, element to him, where, like, you know, he's the kind of guy that would, you know, like to drop a lot of acid or do mushrooms or just get baked and then talk about, like, the meaning of life, man. You know, and then his movies really carry that through, um, and have a like a really strong kind of '90s vibe to them.
2: Yeah, you know, I was, it's interesting. I was also reading. I've been reading this uh, book on uh, WeWork uh, called "A uh, Billion Dollar Loser," and um, there is a scene in there where you know Adam Newman, the CEO of WeWork, is married to Rebecca Paltrow, who's Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin, and they have. At one point, you know, Rebecca was trying to be an actress, and she. You know, like funded this fifteen-minute short film called *Awake*, where this dude, um, you know, come—he he he comes in. uh, It's like she's talking to Sean Lennon after like going on a walk. I have to pull it up because it's like really such an absurd scene that connects to like some of the mysticism I felt that um, Dick plays with at that point. Um, Let's see if I can find this though. So very here, yeah, yeah. So it's like you know, um, she pulls up on a a tent. John Lennon's like, "Look, sit down. You have been searching your entire life, uh, from religion to relationship, from sex to substances, from psychoanalysis to to reality television. But the answer has been residing in you all along." She's like, "I don't mean to be rude, but I don't believe in God and spirituality and horoscopes. I just want the pain to go away." And when it's like, uh, the fear is the source of all pain and suffering in this world. From every act of violence to every war, it's fear that is poisoning you now, right? And they go on and on, like this, talking um, about uh, how the 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 world outside them is like forcing them or you know fracturing them a little bit, right? And I think like that's a good theme running through Scanner Darkly, but also, like, his work in this period, because this work in this period is, like, when he's also... He writes, like, Valis at, uh, a little bit later, right? And that also, like, comes at the tail end of, like, his experimentation with... Or him having been subjected to, like, psychedelic uh, experiences with drugs, either for medical procedures or experimentation, and, like, worrying if he's losing his mind, right? And actually, like, fracturing it and trying to document it and in the case of Alice, believing that this is documenting him communicating with like God, or um, as it's laid out in that book, and um, but in this book, it's also mediated through that technology, right? Where the book and the movie, you know, the agents are supposed to be always watching themselves, right? Uh, because a new path has infiltrated every part of the government, and like. Because of also the nature of the drug and also because of the nature of the society and because of the nature of the politics and the bureaucracy, you lose a sense of yourself and no one can help you or is willing to help you. Right. You
1: just and and it like mirrors the psychosis that I think he was worried about, too. Yeah, totally. I I, like when I was watching the film and taking notes, one of the things that I kept writing in my notes is that, you know, what we're witnessing is not just this psychosis induced by the drugs. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Cause like the opening scene of the movie is a, um, uh, it's Freck. Yeah. It's It's
2: Freck like scrubbing himself and his
1: dog. Because there's bugs. There's like a mat, like like he's imagining that he's just covered in these aphids, these really gnarly Mm -hmm. looking aphids. Uh and so he's having the psychosis, the psychotic break, and you know, Freck, this guy, um, is really deep in his substance D uh dependency and and spiral. Uh we, you know, it's kind of a foreshadow of where uh Arctor, you know, played by Keanu Reeves, uh gets to by the end of the film. But but so there's this psychosis induced by the drugs, but it's also mixed. Uh, it's all shaken up in this really, you know, toxic cocktail with the paranoia, which is induced by the policing surveillance apparatus, right? Because uh-huh. they're they're like, and 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 with good reason, because as we see, there is this like ubiquitous, um, super powerful surveillance apparatus that actually exists. So we see parts of it where like. Um, you know, Keanu Reeves' character calls up Donna, um, played by Winona Ryder. Um, and I was when I was taking notes, this isn't this is like such a star-packed, star-studded film. I was just using their real names. I was like, I can't keep track of like their their movie names. I'm just taking notes as their as their real names. Um, so you got Keanu calling Winona, but then it also like from there, it like uh, takes us to this. This weird room full of all of these, uh, these kind of like surveillance stations where you've got the, you know, data analyst. Kind of uh, uh, looking at multiple monitors and 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 honing in on these telephone calls and you know using voice recognition to identify who's on the call and then oh you can't you can't identify who's on the call with voice recognition so we need visual uh, recognition so they using you know they're tapping into this ubiquitous network of surveillance cameras and stuff and uh, you know and and seeing who's talking to who on the phone so it's this like and what's wild. As this came out in 2006 you know philip k dick i conceptualized all these scanners as they're called um you know in the 70s and but this is the nsa right like this is this is actually existing um it's basically like if the nsa were being used to its max uh capacity you know actually being used on 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 everybody and in this in this way um and so, so you, you get this, this cocked, this potent cocktail of, like you said, like 25% of the population's addicted to substance D. There's a point where, um, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, who's this like, you know, one of the, one of the guys that hangs out in Keanu's house, you know, he's this kind of like lays around, you know, conspiracy theorist kind of guy. Uh, and, and he says, Um, there's no weekend warriors on the D you're either on it or you haven't tried it. Right. So, you know, it's like everyone who tries it gets immediately addicted to it. 25% 25 percent of the populations addicted but then on top of that or, or rather you know as it's played in response to this drug academic this 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 war on drugs, um, that's where you get this like ubiquitous pr- uh, surveillance and policing and this like super convoluted network of informants informing on each other mm-hmm. uh you know agents watching and entrapping each other you know people because because they're all wearing these scramble suits when they're actually in the police department, So they don't know who's who to keep everyone's identity safe. Right. I think
2: that it is, I think this movie really in particular is like such a good, like you said, the way that it both shows how, uh, you know, you know, drugs and social conditions can lead to a, a sort of psychosis, but also like, so can like living in a society where you are like lying, spying, Surveilling, censoring constantly, and the the and the and the choice to mediate that through the technology, um, or that what we see is like the technology is everywhere and it's part of like the this it's embedded in daily life and lived experience, and then that the way the dr- and then the drugs end up accelerating feelings of fragmentation and alienation. I think is a really you know sort of uh, insightful. Choice by him because there's so many move moments in the in the uh, in the movie where you would think that there could be a solution to some dramatic tension going on by simply revealing their identities by simply being upfront with the character, but it's not so much that like there's tension just for the plot's sake or because of the uh, diff- divergent interests when when it comes to the drugs or their their distaste for each other like for each other as like characters or directors in this house but also just because like um for example if like they he did reveal himself the technology would reveal him and that technology would then like result in an avalanche of shit coming down his way right and mm. and, and it just enables and empowers like authorities to uh to act in more more powerful, authoritative, controlling ways that, feed and, and that like, condition you to act a certain way and embed fear in you and embed, like, a self-awareness of that scanner in you constantly. Because, like, you know, when he's at his house, when he's out with his friends, he's acting in a way where he also knows that, like, the surveillance is there, right? So he has to make sure that he doesn't say anything suspicious. But then that also leads him to be a little bit more suspicious with his friends. And then that leads to a dissonance, which then gets relied on more with the drugs, which then makes him, you know, further split into this dissonance, which then when he's self-aware of it, causes more fragmentation and then pushes him to the drugs with, you know, so it's on and on and on and on.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I, I think like a, a, a you know, kind of key driving thing behind the movie is Keanu's uh, progressive loss. Like he's progressively losing his mind throughout the film Um, kind of lose because as, as we learn, you know, he's, he's subjected to, this series of psychological testing uh, by the psych- by the the police psychologists who are there, you know, using these weird tests that are kind of like, you know, I, I thought of them as like Voigt-Kampf tests, right? Like they kind of had that same vibe, but rather than fi- figuring out who's a replicant, um, uh, it, or you know, the idea was to use it to determine um, what you know if a user of substance D. Uh, was suffering from brain damage and thus kind of this distorted perception of reality, you know? And so, you know, I I liked in the film where the psychologist explained, you know, the test to um, Keanu really matter of factly saying it's, you know, it's not a war shock test because it's not interpretive there's only one right answer uh you know the, in in this idea that there's only one reality right there's only one way of perceiving reality there's only one way of understanding reality and if your way of understanding that reality um, and your sense of being in reality differs from this one way then that then you are becoming psychotic you are losing your mind um, and as they described it like literally like this substance d caused as the two hemispheres of your brain to disconnect and begin competing against each other. So left and right hemisphere, rather than working in choreography, work in competition. And, uh, yeah, so, it, I mean, that was, it was really interesting because it was this idea of, uh, it ha- you know, it brings in a lot of these Kind of themes as well of like what it means to live in a kind of postmodern world, right? I mean, that's part you know, that's partly a uh, an as you know an artifact of the time that the movie was adapted and that the and the original novel was was made. But that's those questions of identity are definitely still relevant, right? And this like, question of uh, not uh, not really uh, of of both splitting identity, so this kind of schizophrenia. But also like not recognizing yourself, um, not not being able to uh, you know watch yourself on a on a video camera and realize that you are watching yourself. It seems like you are watching someone else,
2: right? And not also and also not even being able to see yourself in other people, right? Because like the way he's relating to people, he's constantly in like you an antagonistic relationship or in a fearful, paranoid one, and by the time he realizes the spider web that he's been cast into that he's the sacrificial lamb to bring down new path it's too late you know he's he's already been um, i think irreparably harmed by um, the drug and at best he's like you know repeating phrases not really aware of anything not really present and it's like a far off memory that gets him to save evidence at the end, you know, like he's he at the end, he it is revealed New Path is growing uh, this drug is, that is uh, harvested into Substance D, right? And he like vaguely picks a flower and says, This is for my friends, you know? But if you remember, like throughout the movie, it's not that the flower is for the friends, it's that he's, be, he's been primed in psychological tests to bring the flowers to Donna, his girlfriend when he's undercover and his boss when he's in the office and um and like the damage is so severe that it's not even like directly related to donna anymore it's just his friends his friends of course being like he thinks now he only really thinks of the people that he's in the rehab center with as
1: opposed to uh, his whole yeah donna played by winona Ryder, um who you know does a does a, a i think a really great job uh but but uh the, I mean, there's so much act. There's so much good acting in this film too. If we can just kind of back it up for a minute, uh, or kind of give that that overarching view of the production. I mean, so you got Keanu Reeves, you got Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, and Winona Ryder as the kind of main cast, um, and and a lot of them, you know, reading about like the making of the movie, a lot of them signed on based on um, having read the script and seeing who you know what it was adapted from and who was making it. You know, it was a Philip K Dick novel adapted by Richard, Richard Linklater with this really wild script. And so that was like all that was needed to, um, bring, bring in all these people. And then I also wild too, is that like Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney are executive producers. So yeah. it's like, it's really weird to have so much Hollywood star power, uh-huh. Uh-huh. um, behind what is ultimately an extremely strange and bizarre, movie and one that like like there's all these connections like you're talking about how you know Keanu was primed from like throughout the movie to think about bringing flowers back to friends you know kind of foreshadowing that they were willingly getting you know um, purposely getting him addicted to substance D and kind of throwing him under the bus. So he would be sent to this new path rehab clinic, um, which is actually more of like a labor camp. Um, You know, it's like a farm in like up, you know, somewhere in California uh, and the, the patients are the only ones allowed to work on the farm because they're all like, you know, severely, you know, they've all had psychotic breaks and they're all like brain damaged. And there's also,
2: there's also like a scene where you remember when, Uh, Keanu's uh, character is about to storm out and stop Um, like Donna has invited him over um, and he storms out and after he storms out she says and makes a big point of saying like that her dream is to like go to a farm like up north somewhere Mm. right and the way that it's described just sounds like in retrospect one of these farms and like being reiterated to like connect him and her, connect her to the farm when he ends up. Th- yeah,
1: but the, they were like psychologically priming him throughout the whole movie, which which also, I mean, it really plays into this kind of um, like subliminal uh, manipulation as well. I mean, I, I I I honestly didn't catch didn't catch like. Some of these things that you're referencing now, I'm remembering. me like, "Oh yeah, that's right." Fucking Winona did keep saying she wanted to go to a farm, um, and they did keep priming him about like bringing flowers back to his friends because they knew that like you know he would go through this Keanu would go through this psychotic break, but that he would have these this like psych, this psychological uh, you know training kind of you know in his subconscious mind embedded within him. And, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, I I think even more egregiously is that like when, when, um, you know, his Kiana superiors at the police department confront him about his substance D addiction, they say that he quote willingly and knowingly became addicted to substance D. So this idea that, you know, it was his choice, it was his fault, Uh, You know, he knew what he was doing and he he willingly kept taking substance D only for us to learn later that that it was all a big scam that he didn't willingly or knowingly do anything. They they made him do it,
2: you know, and I think it's also it's really this makes me think of, you know, some of David Graeber's work on bureaucracies, too, and the idea that like, you know, bureaucracies kind of. Um, assume every single individual is rational, right? And just like you can reduce them to simple movements, to mathematical anticipation and calculation, and because of that, then you have to like it. Just it's it, it just sounds so callous. For them to be like uh, in that scene, they're like, you know, your paycheck's going to be smaller than usual because we're going to fine you and you should be happy because we're only going to fine you. We're not going to put you in jail. When at the same time, because of their own rules, they're going to like throw him to the wolves and they've been intentionally sabotaging his life in the name of uh, adhering to another rule, which is that you can't. Uh, do drugs like substance D and that they need to take down new path, which because of other rules has been able to successfully infiltrate. Like there's a scene that also where they talk about how a new path actually has a deal with the government where the surveillance system, the scanner system doesn't work on their facilities. Uh, it, and, there, and that is like a, like a throwaway line, but that also it's like, well, it doesn't work on their facilities. They've infiltrated the government you can't really go about it in any sort of rule-based way. So the way that they're doing it is like punishing Keanu, forcing him to do what they want by using the rules to get him to be the sacrificial lamb. And then pretending like they didn't really do it. Like at the end, feeling a little guilty about it, but saying like it's.
1: Yeah. The movie is so full of these little throwaway lines that just tell you like that build out this world and you wouldn't catch them if you weren't paying attention um one of the one of the throwaway lines that i I caught uh, was they were talking about it was near the very beginning. and um let me look in. In my notes here, uh, here we go. They were talking about how, uh, the, the U.S. military and their associates, um, are actively engaged in war against drug terrorists in countries, uh, where the blue flower to produce substance D originates. And then they very quickly flash up a map. It was like when, uh, Keanu was like giving this speech to, uh, you know, this, this like, you know this lodge you know giving an anti-drug speech to i think the the brown bear lodge i think they called it but they very briefly show this map of where the flower is grown and therefore where like the u.s military is conducting these these wars um and and i had to i had to press pause on my uh, on my video and rewind it a little bit because the 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 map only flashes for a second i want to see all right where where is this flower coming from and would would it surprise you to see that the flower is being produced in south america and africa and that's where the mil- that's where the military uh-huh. has its uh you know is in this war against drug terrorists
2: <laughs> that's where our troops are right you know and God bless that. God bless the truth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it opens up these questions as well, because we only we learn at the end of the movie that the drug is actually being produced like on these farms in in California, right? So it's like, uh, and so it opens up all these questions of as well of like how deep is how deep does the conspiracy run between New Path and the government, right? Uh, like, does does the government know that the flower is actually being produced by New Path? Uh, and therefore, but they find a useful scapegoat as well to run op, to to run ops in South America and Africa. Uh, you know, so 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 it's a little bit of a handshake deal where New Path gets to be a um, a, a drug cartel, and the military gets the perfect uh, excuse and justification to to ramp up its its wars. I mean,
2: right? And I think this is also like a good sort of. Uh, bridge also in a connection to like in our world right you know like when if you don't know the answer to those questions or if you like you said on first glance you just see the flowers in Africa and in South America, Asia and you just assume like that's where it is and then the reality is that if since it's in the United States you have to ask what the relationships are that are allowing them to go all over the place but no but without like realizing that there's no ability and without Understanding that and realizing that there's also no chance of like disrupting it and, and ending it like they're trying to at the end, and I feel like in our world, you know, it makes me think immediately of like uh, the ways in which large concentrations of like private power, specifically the like the tech sector, are like you know they are very obvious manifestations of where the problem is, um, but closer examination sees it's like coming from. Uh, California, <laughs> you know, like, or, or, or uh, DC or, um, or New York or what have you, or that th- it, it's not so much that those are the specific places where it's coming from, but there's like a largest network of trends, forces, relationships that turn attention to one area and obscure, um, analysis and distract and, uh, protect, uh, where the beating heart is so that people don't like go, Hey, you know, like it's weird that new path is the only place in this country where you're not allowed to have this scanner system. And it's maybe they're maybe they have a connection to like the drug that their whole business model
1: relies on. Hey, it's weird that like, but no, no, it's, it's to protect right. the patient's privacy. Ed, don't you care about right. privacy? And like, Hey,
2: it's weird that like uh, Silicon Valley, you know and has such close ties a lot of these companies have such close ties to like military contractors or are military contractors or have close ties to regulators or have close ties to politicians or employ all of those people and like at the same time the government is unable to regulate them and at the same time they tend to get like mo- like unquestioned un com- no bid contracts or in one way or another they get like Um, painted favorably or legitimized. Like what's the connection there? Nothing. You know, that's just a coincidence they're protecting us. Right. Of course, a public servant would go work for a tech company. The tech company is the future. The startup is the future political forum. They're just going where, uh, progress is. It's totally not like a revolving door.
1: No, it's all, it's all about, it's all about making society better, which is where like the, the parallels with New Path comes in too, right? Cause it's like, how, what could be wrong with the, with the, with New Path? This company is running, you know, rehabilitation clinics. They're running, you know, commune farms. You know, they're, they're running all these programs that are meant to help people dry out, get sober, fight this, this drug epidemic that's, you know, ruining society, causing civilization to collapse.
2: Right. You know, it's just it's look, if who are you going to trust? You going to trust New Path? You know who's doing something about the problem or you going to trust the government who has to rely on New Path to solve the problem?
1: have you ever built anything ed have you you, you, know, <laughs> you, you constantly want to tear things down <laughs> but I, I don't see you out here building shit i don't see you out here talking about the need to build you know mr
2: angueso fund my startup <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> i bet that's the shit that they want me to do yeah what yeah we should just start on vc dude no 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 we should start on SPAC. let's do it
1: I'm starting my own rehab clinic. You start, yeah. you start a SPAC, I'll start a rehab clinic.
2: I'll start a SPAC to acquire your rehab clinic, and then we'll use the uh, the returns. But,
1: but, but get this, get this. I'm starting a rehab clinic for the real drug, social media.
2: Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> less screen time. When you get in there, no screen time. You're going to be required to deactivate all your uh, all your accounts, and to leave, we'll give you back your phone, halfway through and you have to keep your screen time below 30 minutes a day <laughs> and i know that's a lot but 30 minutes a day and it's a lot to ask but we can do it together we Look, can uh, put you on nobody
1: nobody likes a detox all right you it wouldn't be a detox if you liked it but it's good for right. you it's good we, for and you.
2: We're, <laughs> we're here to save you you know you could have like like i could just i can hear SoftBank's next pivot, <laughs> their next uh, company is going to be a company that gets you to stop using other companies and to only use their company. You know, Facebook bad for you, Twitter bad for you, uh, SoftBank backed ventures great, good, humanist.
1: I mean, we're we're already seeing this uh this this total vertical integration right now, right? Where it's like you you know, you got to fund the you got to fund the shit that's that's you know doing bad, uh but you also got to fund the solutions. To the stuff it's doing bad, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Whether it's whether it's Google uh, providing you know ethics services, right? Because it we we've learned we've learned through our our mistakes, and now we're ready to tell you how to do AI the right way.
2: Yeah, you know, COVID, uh, in the early days of COVID, um, I think Evgeny Morozov had like a really good point about how um, he was trying to re- he was trying to like reiterate solutionism um and talk about our current he was you know basically so you think of like a good cop and a bad cop and the bad cop is neoliberalism right uh it's you know austerity measures it's uh, it's really clunky attempts to privatize and then the good cop solutionism where now you know there is no alternative or time or funding um to anything other than digital solutions and they're not even really solutions they're just like using digital Uh, forms and 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 products to plaster um, massive cracks right and you know solutionism then becomes a way to like use technology to avoid political to politics to avoid solving to really solving a a social problem or or really addressing an economic uh, outcome and instead just like using technology to like paste over it and it's it's without ideology and it's just like that is more and more the push you know like privatization is bad. We all know that privatization uh, yields unfavorable outcomes. It's it's clanky. It's in the public imagination as a horrible thing and 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 satirized an endless amount. But solutionism comes in as the good cop where you, you're not privatizing healthcare, you're providing wearables with a subscription-based model that will allow you to monitor your own healthcare um, and interface with doctors uh, in affordable health care plans that the marketplace provides for you with um, data that is finally extracted and 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 adapted to your personal needs, right? Which is just privatization, but really fancy with extra steps.
1: <laughs> go go off, Ed. Go off, Ed. <laughs> and, and we we can we can see we you know, to pull it back to scanner directly, we can see that same kind of uh, parallels same kind of themes happening as well where it's like you know the solution to this massive drug epidemic which you know is causing uh you know we get a vibe of the world through uh you know through the movie um and it is it is causing you know this kind of uh you know i I don't know like this it is it is this kind of epidemic that's running through civilization right when you got twenty five percent of people addicted to to the drugs and stuff like that um you know there's one scene where they're talking about how uh Robert downey jr's character you know like uh sold, you know bought a bike off somebody for you know fifty bucks and then they you know they go through this whole scene where they're talking about like oh i th- i th- I think that bike. Uh, you know, I think I know somebody that owned that bike before and they bought it off this other per you know. So it's just talking about how it's like this hot bike that's just trans, you know, transferring hands. Um, you know, it, it's druggies selling bikes to druggies and, and in this kind of infinite cycle. So, it, you know, they paint this picture of a world in decline, but at the same time, Going back to what you were saying, Ed, is that uh, the the solution to to these problems is this ubiquitous surveillance network? It is. Uh, 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 kind of uh, this this network of informants. It is the invisible holographic scanner surveillance systems that are embedded in you know in people's homes. Um, it is the scramble suits that keep everyone's identity uh, anonymous, but also then causes these kind of breaks in identity because you lose yourself in them and you lose yourself through the drugs. And so the the solution to the problem is, like, it's gasoline, right? We've got this big fire going, and so what we need to do to put out the fire is pour so much gas on it that just burns itself out, right? And maybe, maybe you know, that 25% of the population that's addicted to, to these drugs, maybe they burn out too. You know, maybe they psychotic break, maybe suicide like we see in the film. Um, maybe, you know, maybe something else. They get sent off to a labor camp. But, you know, that's part of burning out the problem is you got to burn out those, those addicts.
2: Right. You know, I think and this burnout idea, you know, is like one that is I think baked into capitalist logic right the idea that look like they're ex- an acceptable cost in terms of human lives is pretty high so long as it doesn't interfere with your ability to find new people to go to right and often and sometimes burnout ends up some might people try to conceptualize it as something good because like oh you know like you can't have too many people on the platform you can't have too many people working for it I think like you know, Eternal perfect example is always Uber in this instance, right, where Uber overhired, right, Uh, using predatory aims and means, Um, a lot of drivers being subsidized, a lot of trips being subsidized. What's the way to get drivers to get off the platform. One way is to cut the wages, right? But That doesn't always work um, because some drivers can adjust by simply working more and more hours even if it puts a huge strain on their bodies and their lives, right? Uh, Because they need to survive and they need to make ends meet. Um, Another way is what they did in New York temporarily where you just make a quota um, that half of all drivers can't make and the quota is the only way you can get access to hours so that you don't have to do the quota anymore. And that helps. When New York City did, uh, when Uber and Lyft did that in New York City um, last year, and then uh, up until March, <laughs> when they, they canceled the the program, the day I wrote about it, um, they fired like ten thousand drivers up until that point, or got ten thousand drivers to quit, or fired ten thousand drivers, right, essentially, right? You know, that's sort of, the burn that burnout is acceptable because it like lines their pockets and improves the margins, but it ignores the massive amount of cost. Just like in Scanner Darkly, like what's the massive, what's the real cost of 25% of the population being addicted to a drug that literally causes such damage that it is equivalent to like splitting the hemispheres in patients and in, um, and then subjects in that movie. I mean, it's horrible, right? You know, but it doesn't get mapped out.
1: And the solution is this: like, uh, is this police bureaucracy and this surveillance, this uh, surveillance industrial complex, right? Like, that's the solution. It's just, it's really wild how you know. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite bits of dialogue from the film, and I, I use this GIF all the time. And it just starts from um, it's this scene. I think Jeremy will drop it in here. But, you know, just starting from that that one innocuous question where the waitress asks, you know, how's your day going? And then, you know, it just spins off into this, this conversation where, you know, Rory Cochran or, you know, Freck, the, the guy who's kind of going through this really deep substance D psychotic break, you know, just, just spins off. You know, my, my day's not going great. You know, my life isn't going great. And in response, you know, James uh, Barris, who's Robert Downey Jr., responds with, a, you know, I think a, a, an evergreen quote, right, where he says, this, this is, is a world, a getting, world progressively getting progressively worse. worse. Can, Can we not agree on that? that? <laughs> you know, and it's like it's like. You ask that one innocuous question. It's a question that does not demand an answer. How are you doing? How's your day going? And it's like, if you wanted a real answer to that question, if you wanted the truth of the matter, uh, you know, it's going worse than it was going yesterday. And it'll be worse tomorrow. And it'll be worse the day after that.
2: Yeah. I think that's also the other thing that I like this movie captures is like, I think one of the promotional posters was something like, it, it's not going to get better. And that is uh, a feeling that emerges more and more every day, right? That things maybe will get better in the sense of like individual day to day stuff, uh, career, uh, personal life, relationships. Maybe that stuff will improve, but like you can sense that the larger society itself is uh, slipping and sliding towards doom um and that sort of pervasive feeling i think colors the background in a way that is understated where even if um keanu reeves character can get a handle on his addiction right or even if um robert downey's uh junior's character um you know, stops being such an asshole and, and trying to frame him for a sure. certain... Um, even if all that were to happen, the world they still live in is pretty shitty, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and, like, they're, they're left drifting, and the world is left rotting because of the the substance D that's being manufactured by New Path and spread, and, and the government is still going to continue to, like, surveil everyone. And it doesn't really matter so much that, like... They might score one day, or they might finally fall in love with someone one day, or they might finally like have a good day. Um, in general, and like overall, everything is just getting worse. It's just getting worse.
1: It is this sense of drifting, and it's like, and you know, it's 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 a difficult mood as well because it's like you know, say that you know, this last week, you know, I know we've been vibing. A lot of people been (laughs) vibing this last week. But these, but these, but these are like you know ports in the storm, right? And it's like we have to, you know, we have to vibe. We have to, we have to take full advantage of this good feeling, um, and we, you know, we want it to never end, and you know, we, we want it, we want it to reach climax. Uh, but it's hard not to think as well that this is a port in the storm, and eventually we will be thrown back into the rough waters. Well, you know, we'll be thrown back into the storm to to drift. Uh, until we, you know, we reach another port or until we sink. Right. Right. And that that's, I think that's something that, and this one, you know, I think that's a good segue to talk about what I think this movie does really well, because it's what Philip K. Dick does really well, um, is that it's, it tells a story, okay? Uh, it's a really com- you know, it's a hard to follow story. It's very and it can get kind of convoluted. But that's not because it's bad storytelling. It's because it's more concerned with conveying and sustaining a mood, a vibe, right? Like you can watch this movie or you can read any Philip K Dick novel and if you get the de- like the the nitty-gritty details of the plot, that's fine. If you lose track of the plot, that's also perfectly fine because it's really more about vibing. It's really more about feeling the novel, about having this mood uh, that's that that that's kind of uh, conveyed to you. And I think that's what Dick does really well, and it's why you know I I I personally you know um, and I I've argued in, in my work and I you know I think personally that the the kind of two. Prophets uh of of our time you know it's not orwell right it's not thinking about big brother it's not thinking about 1984 um it's not that kind of 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 surveillance system which i think scanner darkly is kind of a bizarro version of um but nor is it like uh aldous huxley right thinking about like brave new world um, which I think Scanner Darkly also does a really good job of a kind of bizarro version of Soma. Um, you know, this idea that we're all so drugged out that we don't care, right? Like, we're just blissed out from the drugs. Um, and so, you know, it's this kind of induced apathy. If Orwell is this induced um, kind of, you know discipline, then uh, Huxley is an induced apathy. But I think Scanner Darkly kind of blows up both of them in a really interesting way. There's a a little bit of dialogue. Um, maybe Jeremy can drop it in uh, here as well between Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, um, which, you know, Keanu tells her, right, like, you have a habit. And Winona's like... We all do. I mean, so what? What's the difference? I'm happy. Aren't you happy? So, and then Keanu replies, "Listen to me. I think it's starting to get bad, but it's unclear if he means the habit is getting bad, or the world is getting bad, or their life is getting bad, or just right. d all of the above." Yeah, <laughs> if it's just everything. <laughs> Yeah, but I like that because I, when I when I was watching that, it made me think like, oh, this is like a like substance D is like this bizarro soma where it's like you you take it and you convince yourself you're happy because what other choice do you have? But in reality, you're just losing your mind. You're losing your grip on all on reality, on identity, on perception. Uh,
2: Philip K. Dick is fascinating um, in that that later end where he's con- where he's like really anxious about his um his own sanity it's like also when he gets into some of i think some of the more interesting questions about like what that's what what structures in our society also replicate that or make it worse you know like like yeah the movie is ultimately about drug addiction it's mm-hmm. ultimately about like the ways in which drug addiction can you know, destroy someone's lives, and also like the way that the war on drugs is can destroy people's lives. Uh, but it also is like gives us a window into the way in which like a society can be built in which there's no a- there's no there's no option for people. Um, who are fighting drug addiction, and also there's like the options that are chosen for the people who are ostensibly fighting against drugs are to just hurt people and punish them. Uh, for this choice. And I think um, one of the more insidious elements of the way technology merges with policing is that, one, we still haven't done any real reckoning with how policing isn't even, like, really about keeping people safe more than keeping private property safe and then enforcing certain types of social order. And until there's, like, you know, until, like, the misconception, I think, that police are primarily there to like keep people safe and not that that's like an after effect for a multitude of reasons. There's like always going to be a, a difficulty with like spotting how technology just makes things worse, right? Spotting the ways in which technology can make the drug war, um, you know, uh, punish people who are addicted to drugs, uh, the way that it can be used, finally used and uh, used to uh, finely tuned to target black and brown people, the way that it can be, you know, finally used to throw people who are experiencing psychotic breaks into, like, patterns and and marginalize them from society where they're going to be back in jail again and used for labor and so on and so forth. Like, all of that gets erased um, with tech, with, like, the legitimacy, legitimacy narratives that police already have. And I think, like, confronting a story like scanner darkly where you see where again it's like primarily about drug addiction but also in the background you're seeing that this society has made a very conscious choice to just like exploit people to surveil people to punish people um should make you think back on our society and like why we've made those choices and and what things could be like if didn't do them, and also how bad they can get it. Yeah,
1: I mean, even that use of of the phrase in the beginning of the movie, "drug terrorist," right? Like that encapsulates the two things that have caused, uh, you know, the most police policing ramp up, um, have caused the most havoc and death and destruction in particularly black and brown communities. You know, it's a war on drugs, you know, hello, Nixon to Reagan, you know, uh, and, and then terrorism, right? The global war on terror. Uh, you know, these, so these wars on these, these concepts really you know the concept of taking drugs it's not a war on drugs it's a war on the concept of taking drugs and on the communities who are associated with taking drugs right Uh, and it's not a war on terrorism or terror it's a war on this concept of terror
2: you know it's always going to get worse I think because like you know there is even like in the movie there's one moment where they really ask whether they need to do it right and, um, you know, Donna's character was, I forgot what the agent's name actually ends up being. Uh, but even if that's her real name, you know, ask like, yo, look, can I even do this again? Can I send another person out there? And the guy just like, is like, look, who cares? We're going to do a good thing. And also, you know what? Maybe one person will put, like, he's trying to spin this encouraging portrait, but it's kind of horrifying. He's like, maybe some minor history book will have a brief mention of the things we had to do, but no mention of, like, the people we sacrificed. And it's like, okay, that's even worse, like, <laughs> that uh, whatever you were trying to spin, what like, why would that be reassuring to someone who's having an like, existential crisis about whether they should have um, destroyed someone's life, Uh and I think like that's because there's no question about whether or not it was the right or wrong thing to do. It's just like how far you need to go to do it.
1: Dick talks about this in a, in, in interviews as well, where it's like he didn't mean for it to be this anti-drug um, novel, right, or story. He really did want it to just be a a, a kind of true a true story about the atmosphere. Um, at that time, you know, he cited this kind of thick air of paranoia caused by the, the Nixon administration, um, as well as this kind of like ongoing and constant harassment um, of people in the counterculture by the police. Right. Like um, there, there's a scene in uh, in the movie where um keanu woody and uh uh, robert downey jr are all coming back home um and they you know they see a smoldering joint in the ashtray right it's still hot and they're like oh you know someone's been in the house someone's here and it spirals out of control into this kind of like uh, drug induced, you know, this, this paranoia, uh, conversation, almost a parody of a kind of, you know, uh, of, of drug paranoia, um, where, you know, this smoldering, smoldering joint means, that uh, clearly the walls are full of planted drug evidence and the FBI is on their way to arrest them, so they should quickly sell the house and leave the state, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's an insane logic, but it's only an insane logic from our perspective right. right now. But you can actually kind of, like, see how it makes sense to them, right? Like, in the atmosphere in which they live, where there is... Um, where their house is actually bugged right where it is actually filled with uh with secret surveillance equipment and fred you know keanu reeves is actually an informant um and so is winona ryder right so like two right, of the right. of the four um friend group is in for informants right and so it, it it reminds it it's like at this era right there's all these stories of how um uh, you know, it was more so the case, I think, with like, you know, the kind of communist movement or leftist movements. Right. And there's these all these stories about how, like, you know, the only people attending the, you know, the communist meetups in Berkeley um, were in, were informants. Right. So you've, you've got like uh, informants informing on each other and they're the only people attending these like communist uh, groups and stuff like that. And, and, and that's, you know, it, that that's the kind of reality that dick is trying to um portray and it comes off as a kind of like uh anti-drug uh, movie um more so because it's like anti-drug in this current uh way of of organizing society right like like society has been organized in in such a way that doing drugs is immensely dangerous But not because of the drugs per se, but because of the state uh, and because of the society's reaction and response to people doing drugs.
2: Well, you know, well, at the very least, like, you know, this movie does give us an encouraging message, which is like, no matter what... You know, when you're at your lowest point, when you need help, uh, the government will be there to push you over the edge (laughs) or or a corporation or a corporation. I mean, it's your who do you want? Do you want like, you know, you want the government or do you want the government infiltrated by the corporation to do it? They'll be there
1: to push you over the edge uh, and profit from it, you know, at, at every step of the way. Uh, or, or, or in the, or in the police's uh, case, right? Just claim more and more power. That's kind of the point I was getting at earlier as well, with like this idea: of the drug terrorist it's, it's the ultimate justification for continuous uh, intensification, right? Like, like you need to have this ubiquitous surveillance. You need to have uh, scramble suits. You need to have this network of informant. You need all of this um, because if you didn't. Uh, you know it's an existential threat to society that they are you know they're the thin blue line standing in between you and this existential threat mm-hmm.
2: yeah you know um and I think like again you know it ends up being one of the ways in which even accidentally it's just like a very poignant kind of look at our world in like you've talked about in your work I mean who is who is the who's the force or actor that gets? to experiment the most with tech and like justify its adoption and mass adoption. It's usually, you know, police departments, right? I mean, as much as we shit on Amazon and creating this ecosystem where you can't opt out of whether it's sidewalk or echo devices, it really is your police department that is putting up the cameras, which are then going to be trawled through with Palantir software or that is setting up like the partnerships to, uh, you know, with Microsoft, for example, in New York City, to have like total information awareness, and or setting up like you know Wi-Fi centers with LinkNYC to just get sh- and scrap the data off of that. I mean, like, there's so many ways in which it really is. No matter what, good or bad, positive or negative, uh, and out outcomes are always going to be used to justify more, right? More 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 more. Yeah,
1: and and we can draw an interesting parallel, I think, here if we think about what different versions of behavior modification look like as well right because you know if you remember from our Zuboff episode this is a, you know this is what the she talks about a lot is the way in which like uh Google and Facebook are using all of this data um to create these uh, behavior modification or these manipulation machines right to to kind of you, you know use advertising as this this way of uh, implanting preferences um, or directing our desires, right? Uh, it, it, so, you know, this is a version of behavior modification that I think, um, you know, the the mainstream ideas and critiques of surveillance capitalism, that's what they're worried about, right? They're worried about that kind of behavior modification, uh, do, you know, really kind of advertiser driven, um, using social media as the, uh, as the, the the main tool. But if we look at a movie like Scanner Darkly, it is also a movie about behavior modification, right? It's about, uh, using the the ubiquitous surveillance system to modify people's behaviors right to induce this kind of paranoia um, which is a great way of of having a disciplined and subdued uh populace is to have a paranoid a paranoid populace um, but also in, uh, in you know and that's more kind of atmospheric uh but also more targeted the kind of things that uh Keanu Reeves is const- is undergoing throughout the entire film right we've talked about you know the way they're using, sub, you know, these kind of subliminal messaging or this psychological, uh, you know, tricks and and so on to um, implant ideas in him to manipulate him to become an addict, um, to and then uh, you know to unknowingly kind of uh, gather incriminating evidence at the rehab clinic slash labor camp. Uh, you know that that's a that's also behavior modification, but it's like. You know, it's it, again. I think Dick is really, really good, um, and it's why I, you know, I see him. Uh, you know, th- going back to the earlier point, it's not Orwell or Huxley that I think. You know, those are the people trotted out as the kind of like literary prophets of our technological world. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think it's it's a uh, it's Dick and Verhoeven, right? We, you know, a lot of people talk about Paul Verhoeven. I don't think enough people talk about Philip K. Dick. But it's not that they're prophets in the sense that they have a crystal ball. It's that they're prophets in the sense that they are capturing a mood, an atmosphere, a vibe, right, uh, of, a, of a kind of trajectory that the world is going on, right? They're not trying to say this is exactly what it's going to be like, but they are trying to say in different ways, this is what it's going to feel like, right? This is what society is going to feel like.
2: And I think that, yeah, you know, and, and, and it it always ends up being a way that touches on, like, that deeper, the deeper, I guess, you know, technologies can always change, they can always be redirected in one way or another, but the ways in which technologies end up being deployed are ultimately reflections of, like, what the politics are in the society, right? And... Those politics affect people's lives and re- and and the way they relate to each other in ways that are beyond like tech forums, right? And so it makes sense that someone who's constantly thinking about um, what the world is what the world really is going to make people feel like it has a better finger on their pulse in the case of you know like Dick, right, or Van Hoven, uh, than like you know, I think Orwell or, you know, uh, Zamyatin or Oxley have really incredible insights in their dystopian novels, right? But these are also like ones that at one point for one reason or another became dated or um, cliche because they kind of ended up focusing more so on the means that it would happen, right? And not so much like, what it would end up looking like. I mean, but even, uh, even though there are some points in both of those, on all three of those books, in We and Brave New World and in 1984, where they, they they touch on something. But I think that Dick, for example, does that in almost like every book more frequently.
1: Yeah, and, and he, he he just does it in this way that, you know, I never look to him to see what the technology is going to be like, right? You look to him to see what the society is going to be like, Uh, and, and that's a really important difference. It's a really important difference because I think a lot of people look at sci-fi, um, and they focus on the technology and they focus on its predictive, uh, you know, attributes. How predictive is it of what comes to pass? Um, and I, you know, I think, uh, Dick is never trying to predict, right? He's really just projecting, um, into a, into a near future what already exists you know none, none of none of what he's talking about in any of his books um are trying to extrapolate to a different world they are just trying to uh, exaggerate the existing right.
2: world right and to um i think really to like great effect you know i think his books. That's also, I think. I mean, partly his books also like resonate further because of that, and also because like the weird ass mysticism, right, that he ends up getting to, <laughs> which I think also yeah. does capture a deficiency sometimes of of sci fi and even of like non fictional accounting that invokes tech and science, which is like uh, you know poverty of imagination about what people's internal lives are like. You know, like a lot of even contemporary era. Like I think of uh, the previous period, for example, of like post-tech reporting after the great recession. And a lot of it like suffered because there was no engagement with um, the, the cults around the tech founders, but also the workers, right? It was more so like kind of uh, descriptions and press releases and uh, engagement with like relations out of, out of that in the same way that like stories about tech and purely technology are going to come short of stories that engage with like, what are people going to look like and feel like and act like in certain settings, which is supposed to be what the core of like what sci-fi is, right? Sci-fi is supposed to be like, no matter what the setting Mm. is, it's a story about now in one way or another, usually.
1: Yeah. And I think someone who's done that amazingly uh, as well. Another author is Kim Stanley Robinson in the Mars trilogy, Mm. right? This kind of social science Mm. fiction, um, where it really is about how, what the what society what interpersonal um, relationships look like, but uh, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, Scanner Darkly, I think is yeah, you know, this this definitely goes into the TMK canon as a as mm-hmm. as a as a great uh, as a great film with so many great bits in it as well. I mean, there's so many things we didn't really get into, like the. Um, uh, the, the fact that it's all shot in this rotoscoping effect, right? So it's like, right. you know, it's digital film, which is then gone back over with, you know, by illustrators to provide, provide this kind of animated effect to live action um and i think it, it, it's done in a real you know i think some people maybe see it as, as a bit of a trick as a bit of a gimmick a filmmaking gimmick you know it, it, and it does it gives it a different you know a different vibe it looks different immediately but i think it does also do a, a really good job of um portraying what you know what what reality is feeling like and how they you know the characters are perceiving reality um, because it gives it this really weird kind of fluid effect as well where it's like you know there's no sharp lines things uh things that you know appear to be hovering um or they appear to be flickering right and so reality has this distorted perception i think it actually does a really good job of like what's what reality on substance D this is your brain on drugs right it's not (laughs) it's not it's not a it's not an egg frying in the pan it's a fucking rotoscoped uh, you know world where everything looks like it's been illustrated over
2: yeah you know and I and also like um you know Jeremy we were talking with Jeremy about how like you know Alex Jones is in this shit and Alex Jones you gotta put in the clip of Alex Jones my man is in the parking lot of what can only be described as a Wendy's Just screaming at the top of his fucking lungs about how how uh, the government. He's saying, "Sir, this is not
1: a Wendy's. (laughs) Sir,
2: this
3: is not a Wendy's."
2: (laughs) And and like one of my favorite parts, it's like something that I can't be. 100% 100% communicated over audio, but the way how um, suits pull up uh, to get him and black bag him, but what they do is they lightly, they do a little love tap with the with the cow prod and just knock his ass out <laughs> immediately. But it looks so ridiculous to see them just lightly go boop and that like, Boop, and then bam, he just falls to the ground. They throw him in the car.
1: cattle <laughs> prod him, and they then they throw him in the back of the van. And the the best thing about it is that it's all happening. It's happening in a uh, a park in a fast food parking lot uh, with a bunch of people watching. Right, like people are watching. It. It's funny. He's credited as um, street prophet with bullhorn, <laughs> which is just so. Yeah. It's so egregious because this is you know this is. I think this was shot in like 2004, 2005. So this is like 2004 Alex Jones. So you got 16 years ago. I mean, he was still crazy. You know, he wasn't as much of a part of the the public conscious as he is now. But it's just really wild to have him have a cameo in the movie, be called the street prophet, Mm -hmm. you know, and all the things that he's shouting about are, you know, they're right. You know, Uh (laughs) he's talking about uh, how, you know, the, the, the bigger the war on substance D becomes, the more free freedoms we lose and the more drugs are on the streets uh you know And it's like yeah that yeah man you you're right you're right but it's just so bizarre to have him on there
2: our every waking moment trapped and traced and
3: scanned it's time to stop submitting to this tyranny it's time to realize that we're being enslaved uh-oh it's our tax dollars at work protect us from ourselves hey guys i used to be one of you stop selling out your own species
1: alex jones basically playing the greek chorus in this film right he's kind he's saying you know he's he, he's giving voice to the audience you know he's giving that critical voice you know really kind of giving you this clear-eyed vision of, of what's actually happening in reality uh and But I really love the way they play it up where it's like after he's black bagged and thrown in this van, you know, you got all these people walking around uh, and watching him and they watch him get black bagged. And then after the van drives off, they just go about their business. Right. They're like, you know, that's that's just that's just the world, man. I think Keanu says uh, something like, you know, you know, soon after that happens, like Winona rides up and picks up Keanu, who's like walking down the street watching this. And Keanu's like, man, I. I think so. This this world I don't know. You know, he just kinda of shows off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing some
0: crazy shit
1: tonight. What do you mean?
0: I'm fucking embarrassed You know he works He doesn't kill anybody, but he hangs around until the situation arises where they die. And then he just sits there and he Sort of sets them up in the first place while he stays out of it. But I'm not sure how.
2: I think that's perfect. I really do. I mean, I feel it makes me kind of think also, I mean, different when like uh, the secret police just started blackbagging uh, protesters in broad daylight. And people are like, you know, watching, partly because it's like, what are you going to do when? Four people pull up, two grab them, and then two stand by with a gun, and so you can't really do anything. You know, different situation in that. But it does resonate in, like, the idea that people are going to watch, and then, like, afterwards, like, the people are not immediately concerned. Might as well kind of be like, shit, I don't know. Like, what am I supposed to think about that? Like, shit, you know, they just took somebody. Can I do, like, is there anything you could do about that?
1: This is this is a world getting progressively worse. Can we not agree on that?
2: <laughs> we can all agree the world is getting worse.
1: Yeah, I, I think this has been, yeah, you know, this has been the first episode of this movie kills, um, our first installment rather of. Uh, we'll we'll definitely you know, we'll definitely come back to to films uh, later. You know, in, in a kind of irregular way. I think it's you know it's good, it's fun. You gotta kinda keep your eyes to the, you know, ears to the ground, eyes to the horizon, uh to to see how, you know, see how different how media, different movies and TV shows. I think we'll definitely talk about TV shows on here as well, right? Like, you know, there's media out there that you gotta keep your eyes open to um to you know, kinda give you a different vibe, different feeling for how to think about these kinds of uh these kind of themes and issues. Anything else, Ed?
2: No, I think that's it. You know, um, it like you said, you know, it, it is a really good, interesting, um, like movie medium, and I think like there are like you know, sci-fi is kind of having a resurgence. There's good old and new sci-fi to go back to to like think about the world right now.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely have a, a you know more kind of sci-fi episodes, and I got I got some I got some people in mind um, to bring on to to talk about sci-fi and the kind of politics of sci-fi as well uh with that with that note all right jeremy what you got what you got leave us with the last words jeremy
3: i'd say the uh one of the big unintended consequences of um books and film that depict heavy drug use uh some people think that it kind of glorifies <laughs> that drug use i would say is the exact opposite uh, this movie and uh requiem for a dream or two that definitely come to mind um I had the misfortune of seeing uh, Scanlon Darkly for the first time in a movie theater on Mushrooms. uh, (laughs) And I definitely left the theater um, re-evaluating a lot of my life choices at the time. Uh, And I will say it did help kind of make me a a better person in the end. Um, As far as Requiem for a Dream goes, uh, that movie influenced myself and I'm sure a lot of other people of my age Um, when it came out uh, in my early 20s. Uh, to stay the hell away from intravenous drugs, and it, it damn well did its job better than any goddamn Dare program I was ever in.
1: There, there you go. So, so you know, all the Dare officers out there, just 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 pop this movie on, you know, in the fifth grade class. Yeah, just, just, you know, do a double feature in fifth grade one day. Uh, Scan it darkly, Requiem for a Dream. That, you know, that's more effective than any uh, any dare class out there. So on that note, uh, this is your week's, this, I almost said this movie kills, but it is this movie kills. It's also this machine kills. Uh, I'm Jathan here with Ed and Jeremy, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Charles Freck
0: thought, at least I got a good wine.